0: welcome to the accelerators here for you are a series of tried and tested and proven real world ideas to help you create and enjoy a business and a life of choice the accelerators because success loves speed now we come to the guest interview of the month and this month my guest is rebecca stevens let me tell you a bit about rebecca she first came to the public's attention when she became the first british woman to climb everest in 1993 Following her triumphant descent of this highest mountain of the world, she continued her travels and climbed even more mountains so that finally she had climbed the highest mountain on each of the seven continents, the so-called Seven Summits. Again, she was the first woman from Britain, and only the third in the world, to accomplish this feat. As you gather, she's mad on adventure and has also sailed the southern seas to Antarctica and completed an eight-day eco-challenge with polar explorers Sir Ranulph Fiennes and Dr. Mike Shroud running, hiking, riding and canoeing across the Canadian Rockies. Professionally, Rebecca is in the business of communication. She writes, broadcasts and lectures, drawing from her own experiences on how to achieve absolutely the best performance, both as an individual and as a team. So as you can imagine, Rebecca has a number of key ideas to share with us. So let's go to that interview now. Rebecca, welcome to The Achiever's Edge and thank you for sparing the time to be here today.
1: Thank you very much. Delighted to be here.
0: I know you've been asked my first question many times before, but nevertheless, I still feel it needs asking. Why did you climb Everest, and then why did you go on to climb the other seven summits?
1: I climbed Everest because I fell in love with it. I think that's the simplest way I can put it. I I went there as a journalist first time round, not as a climber. I'd never climbed in, in my life. So I went there to report on other people climbing it, and to be completely honest, I had no comprehension of their way of life or why they should risk so much, if you like to climb what I saw as a, as a lump of rock. I mean, not quite like that. I should say that I, I thought it was very big and beautiful, but I liked walking in the valleys around it and I had no ambition to climb to the top of it. But there I was for a period of 10 weeks at the base camp and higher, and I thought I might try and answer that question, you know, why do climbers climb? And so one day I set off and set myself my own little summit It was only at 23,500 feet, nowhere near the top. But it was good enough for me, and there was a little tent up there, and it was on a ridge, and I knew I'd be able to look over the other side of the ridge. And so when one day my sort of sense of well-being coincided with good weather and somebody who was able to help me, I set off across the glacier and up this buttress towards this little tent on the ridge. I couldn't have done it but for the fact that one of the sherpas lent me all his kit, because I think I literally had a pair of walking boots I'd bought in London before I set off, and an anorak I borrowed from a friend in the office. So this Sherpa, Chuang, lent me all the relevant kits, you know, plastic boots and crampons and harness and ice axe and such. And an American guy, Kurt, led me up those ropes, literally. And to begin with, it was relatively straightforward and relatively easy. The weather was good and we were still at about 21,000 feet. I could breathe all right. But as we got higher, you know, 22, 23,000 feet, we're right on the threshold there of when the air is getting very thin and it makes life quite difficult. That threshold will be different for every individual, but I found breathing quite difficult and it was extremely hard work. And the cloud came in and we couldn't see very much and it suddenly got very chilly. And I mean, I know I wouldn't have made it, but for for Kurt, really, who I was following, and who just repeatedly lied to me about how many fixed ropes there were left to climb. And eventually, through the mist, I saw this tent. It was only, I don't know, 20, 30 meters away. It still seemed a long way away, a lot of effort to get there. But when I did, it was an extraordinary feeling. It's difficult to describe, but if you're at high altitude and you're not actually working, you're not fighting gravity then it doesn't feel too much of a problem. Um, It's when you're trying to make progress and climb uphill that it becomes hard. But there I was able to sit in a tent and I was able to look out. And, you know, the weather wasn't brilliant, but I was able to look down the valley and look down on peaks that I'd been craning my neck to look up at. And it was just the most extraordinary feeling. The combination, I would say, of extraordinary landscape and a sense of well-being and, you know, tremendous self-satisfaction of having found myself in this extraordinary place... And no question about it, that was the moment when I learned why climbers climb, and not only that, that I rather enjoyed it myself. And I am aware of the fact it sounds horribly ambitious, and perhaps I didn't have the right to think that, but I just looked up towards the summit, and I thought, hey, you know, that's something I want to do. I don't know whether it gelled immediately, but that was when the seed was sown, and then I came back down, and over the next few weeks and months the idea really really gripped me and so I started climbing with that in mind
0: sounds fantastic but having done that bit why did you then want to go on and do seven more of them
1: uh, well I should correct you though it was four more because Everest was actually my third of the seven summits prior to Everest I'd climbed Kilimanjaro in Africa on holiday with a friend and I'd also climbed Mount McKinley in North America and that I'd done specifically as a training expedition for Everest. And then, funnily enough, it was on the return flight from McKinley, from Anchorage to London, that I heard about the concept of the Seven Summits. It had never entered my head before. I didn't know the names, Akon, Kagure. You know, they're all unfamiliar to me. But as I started talking to people about it, I realized that there was this rather arbitrary objective, you could say, to climb the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. To me, it just seemed like an amazing excuse to travel the world, you know, a chance to go to every continent. There's much more to mountaineering than just putting one foot in front of another and getting to the top. There is the journey to the mountain, the people you meet, the opportunity to work with these people. It's different from just traveling when you're passing by and observing things. You interact with people, you build relationships with people. And that to me is a treat. And to have an opportunity to do that in so many different places with different cultures was part of the attraction. And then, flying back from Anchorage, I made a little promise to myself that if I got up Everest, then I would go on and climb the remaining four mountains, and so climb the Seven Summits.
0: What were the key lessons, Rebecca, you learned from your adventures, and how could anyone use those ideas?
1: I learned so much. I remember when I first came back from Everest, people asked me, have you changed? And... I said, no, you know, I live in the same flat, my friends are the same, you know, I drive the same car, and I wanted to see it as just another holiday. And in a sense it was, because climbing was a hobby for me. But it was different in that I had to give up my job in order to go to Everest. So there was more importance attached to it from that point of view. But I think now, looking back, that I was really in denial at that time, because a part of me didn't want to change, but I learned so much that. I didn't change. was just ridiculous. I didn't go out there seeking to learn. It just happened that because of the intensity of the experience, if you like, it's impossible not to learn. And I learned mostly about myself and about people. I mean, clearly, I learned a bit about different people from different parts of the world and different landscapes and things like that. But the lessons that I carry with me are about people. And I think what makes that so interesting, really, is that the backdrop in the mountains is very different to that in our daily lives. But the fundamental lessons are exactly the same about, you know, knowing what you want to do with your life and finding a purpose, finding a reason about how to get there and the determination that's required. And most important for me, and I'm talking about as somebody who, you know, had a reputation of being fiercely independent, was the interdependency with other people, and how anything in life of any scale simply isn't achieved on one's own. You have to work with a team. So that lesson to me and, and the importance of that, one, in achieving what you want to do, but also that to me is the value of it. I mean, if I look back at Everest, my warmest and dearest memories are of being up there with two shepherds, Pasang and Jerry, without whom I couldn't have done it, you know. And that's what's enriched my life, and that's what I think... I carry from it, really. Uh, Yeah, that's the most important thing.
0: Well, that makes sense. Now, I know when you talk, because I've seen you speak on stage, that you talk about people realising or defining their passion in life. How do you go about doing that?
1: I think it can take time. I know that the defining moment in my life was when I gave up my job to climb Everest, and I'm not for a minute suggesting everybody should give up their job and do something different. Their passion might well be within their work. Sometimes it isn't. It doesn't matter. But the point is, there's a time when you have to make a commitment to it, and that can mean sacrifices somewhere along the line. But when you do that, in my experience, everything becomes very much easier, and the reason is you are on the right path for you as an individual. So obstacles that are bound to be thrown in your way become easier to surmount because you can see the other side, you can see where you want to go and so you have more desire and thus more determination and it's all fed by that passion to do what you want to do. But what you want to do, it could be a number of different things. I mean, it might be being very successful in business, it might be climbing a mountain, it might be painting beautiful pictures and the secret is for each individual to have the awareness and the sensitivity to appreciate for themselves what it is. Some people know when they're an infant. Other people it takes longer. But I would argue that you should never give up because it's a wonderful thing being on that right path. And not just for you as an individual, but for everybody else in society as well. Because they can see that. There's energy from that which radiates to other people. And, you know, if you're on your right path, then you have a generosity, of spirit that extends beyond that. So other people around you, you can see doing things right for them, but not necessarily for you. And it just, you know, everything fits into place so much more easily then. You're not battling all the time.
0: I understand exactly what you're saying. So really what you're indicating to anyone who would listen to this is that you've got to be open-minded enough to be aware of when something happens in your life that really does trigger that passion.
1: Yes, and I think you have to listen to your own voice and not that of your peers, your teachers, your parents, (laughs) whoever, because, you know, it comes from within.
0: So obviously you're very focused on achieving goals because you achieve so many goals in life, and I'm certain you've got many more to achieve, but do you have a specific process you use for setting your goals? And if so, what is it and how could anyone use that?
1: I have none other than listening. I mean, I think as we get older, you know, with a little bit more experience, you recognize it's coming on. But if opportunities come my way, and they do more so now because I am freelance and that provides a situation in which people might approach you. My first question is always, how badly do I want to do this? And if I'm not really that keen, then I just dismiss it. Sometimes, I'm not saying that I've perfected it because sometimes my gut feeling, my heart will dismiss it immediately but then my intellect will start saying, oh yes, but you know it could lead somewhere else and it could make you good money or what have you and I have to go through this process of matching my rationale with my heart. But usually it's a waste of time because I come to the conclusion that my heart came to the first place.
0: That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So you talk a lot when you do your keynote speeches about teams, about leadership, about self-belief, overcoming fear and things like that. What are the attributes of a successful team leader that you've established over life?
1: Well, a leader is a difficult word to use because I think that so often it infers somebody who is at the top of a hierarchy in the conventional way of looking at leaders. And of course, they are leaders, but I think that everybody in a team is a leader at a different time. And again, coming back to Everest, I think the Sherpas were my leaders often. I drew tremendous strength from them. They were optimistic all the while, so they had that enthusiasm from which I drew energy. I trusted them. I felt very comfortable in their company. All those things, I think, are terribly important in leaders. I suppose if you had to summarize it, it is knowing where you're going, coming back to that, and being able to communicate it to other people so that everybody feels a part of that. And often that requires or involves, in my experience, a good degree of enthusiasm. You have to be excited about the idea. And you have to be able to get on with people. I know that sounds terribly obvious, but in a way, you know, there's communication where you can just blast out emails. But that doesn't mean to say that it's taken on board by the people who receive those emails. You have to be able to understand people at a level to realize that... They perceive the world in a different way. They communicate in a different way. And it's really up to that person, the leader, if you like, to be the one who's sensitive to that and ensures the message is got across. And I think also is realizing one's own limitations <laughs> because you can't do everything. And why should you? You know, there are other people who can step in and do a job much better than you in some cases. So it's a little bit of humility along there as well.
0: So really what you're saying there, Rebecca, is that to be a leader, you really have to be part of the team. Yeah, of course. Makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, you talk, as I mentioned in that previous question, about overcoming fear. How do you overcome fear? You must have had some fearful moments on these various mountains.
1: Well, I wish I had come up with that phrase, feel the fear and do it anyway. (laughs) Because uh, it's a good adage in life, I think. A friend of mine said you should feel that fear, you know, your tummy churning every so often. If you're not, you're not moving forward. And again, this is a wonderful thing about getting older, is that you recognise the pattern and you can see something approaching your life which is frightening, and yet you know if you tackle it, once you've accepted that fight, if you like, and you move through it, there's a process through which you go and then you look back and say, well, what was all that about?
0: If there was one skill, Rebecca, that you'd teach anyone... What would it be and why that one?
1: It would be this business of sitting quietly at times and assessing where you are and what you want. I think many of us fall into the trap of rushing around, fixing things and, you know, doing things without really knowing where we're going. And a lot of that's a waste of time.
0: Well, we're coming to the end of our time together now. So can I finish with one last question? Apart from all the ideas you've shared today, and there's been lots of them, is there one last thought you'd like to leave with us that would make a positive difference to anyone's life?
1: Well, I I don't want to sound too spiritual, but because of the discussion I had last night in a book that I'm reading at the moment by the Dalai Lama, as it happens, he talks about how in our materialist world we've lost some things, but we've gained others. And the secret really is to hold on to what we've gained materially, whilst also... Discovering again the joy of being human in relationships. We live too much in isolation these days. We might be surrounded by people, but our goals are very selfish often. And he was just putting forward the idea that fulfillment and greater happiness comes from giving, if you like. And I'm not saying that I put it into practice in the way I would like, but I think there's a lot of truth in that. Isn't there just...
0: If you've enjoyed our session today, why not head over to our website where we have loads of resources on product creation, on sales, on marketing, and of course, on personal success. That's at theacceleratorsclub.com. I'll see you there.